How do I start? Like, hi everyone. Hi everyone. Hi everyone. Welcome back to the Minute Women Podcast. My name is Grace. And I say I'm Linnea. And I'm Linnea. And I'm Linnea. I literally was Every like, time. what do I say? <laughs> Doctor, I said that test. On Mondays, it's going to be my group of Mondays. <laughs> and feel enjoyment. enjoyment. Oh my god! It's like we're friends or something. <laughs> Hi everyone, welcome back to the Minute Women Podcast. My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea, and gosh, is it good to be here. We have missed listening to ourselves talk, and talk, and talk, and uh, here we are with fresh new content. 2022. Woo! Brand new year. We've been doing this podcast in three separate years now. That's insane. We're only actually coming up on our two-year anniversary, but... It's true. No, but that's... That's the way I count time. That is also the way that I count time. So before we get into it, I mean, exciting news. You got a new job. (laughs) How many times have our listeners heard that? I know, but this one's exciting. How many times have our listeners heard Grace say, (laughs) exciting news. Linnea's got a new job. Yes, I do. Um, (laughs) And as I informed my father, these are not because I have not been excellent in my previous positions. No. I have not been fired. I have chosen. I have made these choices. And they're not they're not lateral. I don't I don't know who I'm convincing here. We're all millennials. Everybody gets it. Uh, yeah, I started a new job with Special Olympics, and so that's pretty cool. It's an organization that I've worked with and volunteered with for uh, I would say a third of my first interview, my first and only interview. Uh, I talked about the podcast, and so clearly there was something about that that they liked. Well, well, well. And yeah. we've been coming back into the circle so, once again. I'm not saying that Minute Women Podcast got me my job, but I'm not not saying that Minute Women Podcast got me my job. Basically, you got me my job, Grace. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Don't tell them that. Don't don't tell them my name. Uh, (laughs) But it is crazy how much the podcast has come up in those situations. I think for both of us. Oh, yeah. Like, it's like a recorded evidence (laughs) that we're we can be fun sometimes and maybe that's the reason i think interviewers honestly just get bored of hearing like the same thing over and over and over again for sure and i can confidently say well and i think i can speak for both of us when i say we are like the type of people interviewers want to interview i'd like to think so actually communicate and like speak and like (laughs) make i carry on yeah it's it's like well it's which is apparently not how everyone is my mom was actually giving me a pep talk about that because I was talking about this date I went on and I was like, I don't know. And she's like, Linnea, you have to think of a first date like an interview for a job. And she's like, you kill interviews. She's like, not everybody does. And it doesn't mean that they're not a great employee. <laughs> so she's like, just because you didn't feel like the person on the date equally matched your energy and like commitment <laughs> level she's like give them a chance like it doesn't mean that they're not like suited for the job <laughs> and i was like i mean that's Touché. a good metaphor yeah yeah <laughs> we'll see do we have any other news you're well into your phd which i is am crazy. oh i've joined the open think scholars the open think initiative Basically, we're just like a bunch of scholars from different backgrounds who want to make a difference in our communities. So, oh my gosh, you know, if you actually want to see what my writing is like, because we have a (laughs) blog and we have to make blog posts for it, you can go over the Open Thing Initiative. You can read my writing instead of, you know, hearing my voice. (laughs) 
equally as fantastic as her sweet, sweet voice. I will say it's definitely rustier than the voice. It's been a while. The first year of yeah. a PhD is a lot of reading. Today was picture day for it. I had oh to Oh my gosh, actually... you got pictures? It's the first time I've had picture day since, I guess, my undergraduate graduation. Oh, didn't you get your booster yesterday? I did. My yeah, arm is exciting. a little sore, but I'm, I'm feeling good. But you were still good for the pictures because that was your yes. worry that you might be like dying. I was slightly concerned, but then uh, Eric was like, you don't, you won't feel anything. It's fine. It's only like a quarter dose or something. It was the the longest I've had the needle physically in my arm for any for any needle. Like I'm not a I don't have a huge problem with needles. Yeah. Um, but I definitely don't want to look. I want it to get like get it over with kind of thing. And so I go into the pharmacy. I like sit down. He goes over all like the paperwork stuff, whatever, and then he puts the needle in my arm, and I'm like, okay, cool, it's over. But then it just kept going. Like, it was a no. solid, like, six or seven seconds of, like, no. needle in arm. That and then I was like, this awful. is weird. And then... That <laughs> makes me feel weak. Like, that just makes me, like, my body feel Queasy. Weak. Do you have issues with needles? <laughs> Not queasy. I don't have issues with needles, but it's the same as you. Like, I don't want to see it. Like, I've had, yeah. like, plenty of IVs. I've had plenty of needles, but I don't want to, like, like, blood work. Blood work's fine, but I just will not look at it. Who are we talking about today? Oh, well, today. This is a lie for our listeners because they actually know. Because Grace got excited and like told me. And so I'm really excited. (laughs) We are diving into what will be a two-part episode on the life of Lucy Maud Montgomery, who is an interesting woman, to say the least. (laughs) She writes good stuff, you know? She writes good stuff. For those who don't know, she's the author of the Anna Green Gables books and many, many other books, which I was not. Does she really do? Aware does of. she do Emily of New Moon? Is that her too? Yep, she has yeah. like three novel series. Mm. I think in total she wrote like two hundred short stories and like five hundred poems. Yeah, she's got poems too. Yeah, it's super funny because it's not super funny. That's that's extreme, but it's slightly funny. Like, I knew that we were doing Lucy Maud Montgomery today, the author of Anna Green Gables, but when you told me, it was, like, a couple weeks ago, and when you first said it, I was, like, Maud Lewis. Like, that's who I immediately pictured. (laughs) And then, like, afterwards, after we had the conversation and talked about it, I was, like, oh, shit. Like, no. There's two famous mods in Canadian history. (laughs) Incorrect, Linnea. Stupid. But, uh, yes. No, I, Anna Green Gables might actually be the first, like, legit chapter book i read oh really um, yeah i think so like i like yeah like an actual actual less like more than a hundred page not big print chapter book yeah interesting and i read all of the emily of new moon books oh, okay um, I see really i don't know many people those. who have gone beyond anne of green gables to be honest i've never read anne of green gables um, that's okay i own it i just don't think i ever you know like the story. Into it. You're immersed. Gilbert and her grandma or whatever, the person who adopts her. Yeah. See, I know the story. <laughs> exactly. William. That's the... He, he dies. That was sad. I didn't like that. <laughs> oh, um, well, if you think fictional death is sad, just you wait. <laughs> just... Yeah, that was really sad when William died. I That also made me cry when I watched the, like, TV show. 
oh did you watch the new like the new tv show not the new one the old like it was probably like a mini series and i've seen the musical he also dies in the musical (laughs) (laughs) it's probably a consistent plot point like i don't know i'm just trying to find a version where he doesn't die and it's not happening (laughs) i'm just trying to find a version of christianity where jesus doesn't (laughs) die because that part made me really sad (laughs) It really fucked a lot of people up. So (laughs) is there another testament where this didn't happen? I don't like this version of the Like the new, new testament. (laughs) So have you watched the Heritage Minute? Yeah. Yeah, I have. It reminds me a lot of the Emily Carr one. Yes. It's it's very like ephemeral. Yeah. You know, like it's just her on cliffs in PPI. And as saying some depressing stuff, PEI, like there's not an extraordinary amount of like cliffs like that. No, it's all like flat that's and Newfoundland. Sandy. Like this is not like this is different. Someone got confused. Whoever Americans. directed this has not been to PEI. A man. He's like, I'm from Saskatchewan. I don't know. <laughs> Nothing can be as flat as here. I was talking to somebody recently. Minute Women's First Tangent of 2022. <laughs> and they were saying how there's so many boat people in Saskatchewan. Was it was that me. You? Yeah. It was me. We were talking. I was like, I was like, it was, I think it was you, but I didn't want to, whatever. There's a bunch of boat people in the prairies. Can yes. our Saskatchewan listeners confirm or deny this? Well, look at um Spencer. Spencer right. Trout, our good pal. From North and Normal Podcast. From North and Normal Podcast. He works in the, he's in the Navy and loves sailing and it's always been a passion of his since he's been a little guy. And uh, he grew up in Manitoba. <laughs> so not a lot of water there. <laughs> I can even get, like, I can get people who grew up on the lakes. Oh, yeah. There's a reason the they're same. called the Great Lakes. Spoiler alert. They they're big. very big. They but big. there's none in Saskatchewan, right? No. I don't know. <laughs> not like bodies of water that you can put, like, a friggin' body vessel in <laughs> there's puddles <laughs> just like i just imagine in the wheat fields just like boats on wheels it's like oh no starboard <laughs> i don't know absolutely i don't know That's boat it. stuff <laughs> but i do know lucy mod montgomery would you like to hear okay. about her i would like to hear about her Smooth transitions are the future of the Minute Women podcast. So let's talk about little old Luce. All right. So Lucy Maud Montgomery is born in Clifton, PEI, or Prince Edward Island. Clifton is now New London, if you were to visit the island today. Haven't heard of Clifton before. Well, it's the one cliff, maybe. The one Uh, cliff in PEI. Must be. And she was born on November 30th, 1874. Her mother died of tuberculosis when Maude was 21 months old. Oh, sad. Really sad. Yeah. It's probably Maude's fault. Her immune system was probably weakened from having a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Way to kill your mom. Just, I'm just imagining a 21, 21 (laughs) month old with a knife just in the room. Uh, Basically Chucky basically (laughs) chucky oh god okay well you know stricken with grief uh hugh john montgomery her father placed maud in her maternal grandparents custody though he remained in the vicinity (sighs) 
history is just such a black comedy to me. It's like, I'm so sad about your mom that you can't be around me. Yeah. I will not raise you. Goodbye. I also like the in the vicinity because I really hope that that means like the grandparents lived upstairs and he lived downstairs. (laughs) They like only spent time together in the kitchen, just in that vicinity. Yeah. Like that was it. Very close. (laughs) When Maude was seven, her father moved to Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. And from then on, Maude was raised by her grandparents. So those are Alexander McNeil and Lucy McNeil in the community of Cavendish, Prince Edward Island. Mm -mm, Potatoes. Potatoes. Montgomery's early life in Cavendish was very lonely. Despite having relatives nearby, much of her childhood was spent alone. She created imaginary friends and worlds to cope with her loneliness, and Lucy credited this time of her life with developing her creativity. Okay. Her imaginary friends were named Katie Maurice and Lucy Gray, which it's weird to name a, an imaginary friend after yourself. But, Super weird. You know. Really um, self-involved. Yeah. It's just like, well, there's Katie and Lucy, those are the only names. This is, that's all I got. <laughs> Very creative. Doesn't sound like she has a lot of friends. Maybe she, like, only knew a girl named Katie. Yeah. Her grandmother's <laughs> name is Lucy. Her name is Lucy. Her imaginary friends lived in the fairy room behind the bookcase in the drawing room. During a church service, Lucy asked where her dead mother was. And uh-huh. her grandmother pointed upwards. Up there. In the attic. This led Lucy to believe that her mother was in the church ceiling's attic. And she was like, why can't the minister just go get a ladder and get my mom down? This seems ridiculous. (laughs) But I do love the like the bureaucratic nature of it, because now the minister is just like a lazy person who's just can't won't just go get a ladder. It's like, God, just got to wait for the minister every week and every week he won't get the ladder. At the age of 13 in 1887, Lucy wrote in her diary that she had early dreams of future fame. This is another thing that we know a lot about Lucy's life because she was a meticulous journal keeper. Okay. And so we have a lot of diaries from her life. So we get a lot of her own opinions on things, which is very interesting, especially for a woman of the past. Hot takes. I love it. Hot takes. There's a lot of hot takes. She submitted a poem for publication, and so, like, she's only a teenager at this point, but she wrote, I saw myself the wonder of my schoolmates, a little local celebrity, <laughs> which, is, which is today the equivalent of, you know, like, when you would draw pictures and send it into the weather. Oh, yes. On CTV. Absolutely. The poem was rejected, and Lucy wrote, <laughs> Tears of disappointment would come in spite of myself as I crept away to hide the poor, crumpled manuscripts in the depths of my trunk. She later wrote, Down deep, down under all the discouragement and rebuff, I knew I would arrive someday. Sad girl summer. Sad girl summer <laughs> in PEI. She has yeah. big dreams. She's, she's like, I'm going to be famous. I'm going to be a star. After completing her education in Cavendish, Lucy spent one year in Prince Albert with her father and her new stepmother, Mary Ann McRae. While she was in Prince Albert, Lucy's first work, a poem titled On Cape La Force, was published in the Charlottetown paper, The Daily Patriot. Oh, very cool. Even at this point, I think she's, she would be like 16 at this point, 16 or 17. She was as excited about this as she was about her return to Prince Edward Island in 1891. 
Before returning to Cavendish, Lucy had another article published in the newspaper describing her first visit to a First Nations camp on the Great Plains. She often saw Blackfeet and Plains Cree in Prince Albert and writing that she saw many indigenous people on the prairies who were much more handsome and attractive than those she'd seen in the Maritimes. Oh, okay. Maybe that's where I need to go. Lucy's return to Cavendish was a great relief to her. Her time in Prince Albert had been really unhappy for she didn't really get along with her stepmother. And according to her, her father's marriage was not a happy one. In 1893, Lucy attended Prince of Wales College in Charlottetown to obtain a teacher's license, and she loved PEI. So being away was really difficult, and now that she has her teacher's license, she's like, great, now I can like dictate my own future, and I can stay in PEI if I want to. She goes on a lot of solitary walks in the peaceful islands countryside, and Lucy started to experience what she called the flash. Okay. (laughs) So this is a moment of tranquility and clarity when she felt emotional ecstasy and was inspired by awareness of a higher spiritual power running through nature. So she's high as a kite. It sort of sounds like that. Okay. Like it sounds like she's having this like spiritual experience being one with nature. Yeah. Yeah. This is why the internet has ruined us, I think. Yeah. Because, like, I am never, like, in nature, even though, like, I love to go outside. Like, wow, (laughs) the same beach I've seen every day this week on my walks. Wow. (laughs) Instead, you're just like, uh, what's the new episode of Minute Women coming out? (laughs) Exactly. Or or that's what you should be saying. That's what you should be saying. Screw nature. Yeah. The Minute Women's official (laughs) stance on nature. (laughs) Screw it. Don't look up. Lucy's (laughs) accounts of this flash were later given to some of her characters. So in the Emily of New Moon trilogy, Emily Starr has a very similar experience with nature. And it also serves as the basis for her description of Anne Shirley's sense of emotional communion with nature. She puts this in a lot of her future books. Yeah. In 1905, Lucy wrote in her journal, Amid the commonplaces of life, I was very near to a kingdom of ideal beauty. Between it and me hung only a thin veil. I could never quite draw it aside, but sometimes a wind fluttered it, and I seemed to catch a glimpse of the enchanting realm beyond. Only a glimpse, but those glimpses have always made life worthwhile. A deeply spiritual woman, Lucy found moments when she experienced the flash as some of the most beautiful, moving, and intense moments of her life. And by deeply spiritual, they mean she's very Christian. Um, Ah, So she associates a lot of these things with, like, God as well. Mm. So Lucy completed her two-year teaching program in Charlottetown in only one year. So she speeds through the curriculum. Brilliant. And in 1895 and 1896, she studied literature at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Just like you, buddy. Yep. Just a dal girl. You're studying historical literature. Literature of the past. (laughs) Upon leaving Dalhousie, Lucy worked as a teacher in various Prince Edward Island schools. Though she did not enjoy teaching, it afforded her time to write. So teaching is not her passion, but it does pay the bills while she's writing her stories. Beginning in 1897, her short stories were published in magazines and newspapers. 
a prolific writer, Lucy published over 100 stories between 1897 and 1907 alone. That's like 10 a year. Yeah, that's crazy. If I'm doing my math right, <laughs> which you can never rely on. <laughs> this is not a math podcast. Not a bad podcast. So it's fine. During her teaching years, Lucy had numerous love interests. As a highly fashionable young woman, oh. she had slim good looks, quote, uh, from her own diary. <laughs> <laughs> And won the attention oh of my god i love men. that i love that <laughs> she had this isn't like in the very first episode of minute women when we're talking about the woman with childbearing hips that's how everyone else saw her who knows what lucy looked like but she had confidence confidence she was like i am a babe <laughs> who wouldn't want this who look at me just look at me <laughs> with my slim body mm, yeah so back in 1889 just at the age of 14 lucy began a relationship with a cavendish boy by the name of nate lockhart which is the name from every high school like teen drama that is a hot name (laughs) to her the relationship was merely a humorous witty friendship uh and it ended abruptly when lucy refused his marriage proposal (laughs) uh yes I am She's seeing... like, we're, I know this is the past, but we're 14. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm seeing a lot of her books, in, like, from her life. Mm, yeah. 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 So her trials and tribulations with men is a very common theme of her life. And I think that a big part of that is because we do have her journals and she writes about it, which is even that's really rare. Like women don't talk about their sexual lives, even like during this period very much in their diaries. Diaries are pretty matter of fact. So it's pretty rare to find a woman who can write. It's pretty rare to find a woman who writes and then writes a journal. And then it's extra, extra rare for them to write about the romantic relationships so her diaries are a very interesting insight into what the lives of middle-class white women would be during this period of time. Middle-class, thin, good-looking white women. Yeah. <laughs> very fashionable. It's not objective at all. <laughs> it's definitely a very specific perspective, but it's one we don't have very often. So yeah. her diaries are pretty cool. In the early 1890s, uh, she had some unwelcomed advances from a man named John A. Mustard. (laughs) Nice. It's just like, I can't marry you just because of the name. Mustard. Just bottom line. Lucy Maud Mustard. (laughs) Doesn't have the same ring. No. And there was also a man named Will Pritchard, who also was someone in her life. And she was like, I don't want you in my life. Please stop. Will Pritchard. So Mustard was actually her teacher and then quickly became her suitor, which is gross. Oh my god, that is gross. He tried to impress her with his knowledge of religious matters. Okay. (laughs) Which, Um, granted, totally a dating thing out of my book. Let me tell you about My first date advice is definitely talk about Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. (laughs) (laughs) So Mustard's best topics of conversation were his thoughts on predestination and, quote, other dry points of theology, um, okay. which held little appeal to Lucy. She's not interested. 
During this period, when Mustard's interests became more pronounced, Lucy found a new love interest in Pritchard, which was the brother of her friend Laura Pritchard. So earlier I said, like, she doesn't want him in her life. It's not quite that aggressive. They had a very amicable friendship, but he just fell in love with her and she wasn't in love with him. So when Pritchard sought to take their friendship further, Lucy resisted and she refused both marriage proposals. So they both proposed to her and she refuses them both. This is her third proposal and she's like, what, 22? Yeah, like she barely 20. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Yeah. that's a lot. So she refused Mustard because he's too narrow-minded and she just considered Pritchard a really good friend. She ended the period of flirtation when she moved to Prince Edward Island. So she's in Halifax during this period of time. Oh, right. Okay. She and Pritchard continued to correspond, however, for more than six years until he died of influenza in 1897. Oh, that's sad. In 1897, Lucy received a proposal from Edwin Simpson, a student in French River. So (laughs) the student has become the teacher now. We have uh, one of her students proposing to her. She wrote that she accepted his proposal out of a desire for love and protection and because she felt her prospects were rather poor. He's her student and she's had three proposals already. (laughs) She's like, I'm running out. Bitch ain't even 30. Like, (laughs) she's an old woman. She's an old spinster (laughs) now. 23. Oh, my God. Okay. Better marry that 14-year-old from your English class. (laughs) Lucy came to dislike Simpson, who she regarded as intolerably self-centered and vain to the point of feeling nauseated in his presence. Okay. Um, While teaching, she had a brief but passionate affair with a man named Herman Laird, a member of the family with which she boarded. Like the son of the house, I guess. It says a member of the family. Do you think it was like the dad? No, because he's engaged to somebody else. Oh. So they're simultaneously engaged to different people. But they're having a very passionate love affair. This is a very exciting episode, I must say. We don't get like exciting stuff. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) She says of the men she loved, it was Leard she loved the most. So she wrote in her diary, so spicy alert. She writes in her diary. Should I have a drink of water? Get ready. Get your seltzers. Get your tea. Get your wine. I'm ready. Herman suddenly bent his head and his lips touched my face. I cannot tell what possessed me. I seemed to sway by the power utterly beyond my control. I turned my head. Our lips met in one long passionate pressure, a kiss of fire and rapture such I had never experienced or imagined. Ed's kisses at best left me cold as ice. Herman sent flames through every fiber of my being. Woo! Jeez, that's that was descriptive. It's a lot for the Victorian era. Yeah, this is that an era is a... of repression. Well, that's that's a historical misconception, but you know. But uh, but we don't yeah. talk about those things. No, 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 no. Don't, don't worry, folks. How historians this... were wrong. <laughs> we we might swear on this podcast, but this podcast will remain PG fourteen. Yeah, go girl, get it. <laughs> little little hot love affair. Little what is it called when you can't have it and you want it. <laughs> what is that word? 
Forbidden. 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 <laughs> I got it. We got there. <laughs> so on April 8th, 1898, Lucy wrote that she had to stay faithful to Simpson. So that's Ed. Gross. For the sake of my self-respect, I must not stoop to any sort of an affair with another man. Spoiler alert, you've already had an affair with another man. Yeah. <laughs> you've already stooped, Lucy. You, you might already as well go for did it. it. Yeah. She then wrote in her diary, if I had, or rather, if I could have kept this resolve, I would have saved myself incalculable suffering. For it was but a few days later that I might found myself face to face with the burning consciousness that I loved Herman Leard with a wild, passionate, unreasoning love that dominated my entire being and possessed me like a flame. I, a love I could neither quell nor control, a love that in its intensity seemed little short of absolute madness. Madness. Yes. Madness. <laughs> That's a fun way to end it, though. <laughs> oh, you didn't make up. You didn't make that oh, up. No. You madness. did the madness. Yes. Madness. i love that girl is you know having her sexual awakening screw that nature awakening shit this is yeah exactly you just haven't you know had sex yet yeah (laughs) that's why nature's so cool (laughs) the internet ruined us sex ruined her so again in victorian canada and a lot of other places during this period of time premarital sex was considered immoral for women and men and lucy had been brought up in a very strict presbyterian household where she had been taught that all who fornicate were among the damned who would burn in hell forever a message that she had very much taken to heart okay (laughs) despite this she often invited leard into her bedroom when everybody else was out though she refused she refused to have sex with him (laughs) okay now just just a little like question so do her journals she wrote say she refused to have sex with him because maybe she thought god was gonna read them <laughs> but the god that she was gonna read the di- diaries yeah i mean this is of her own account she okay. says that she refuses um uh-huh. but she seems pretty honest i don't know if she, unless she thought someone might read her diary someday but yes. then i don't know why you'd write anything that's true so yeah she explained to him that she wanted to be a virgin bride um <laughs> But she and Leard engaged in kissing and, quote, preliminary lovemaking. Stuff. Stuff. <laughs> we, don't, we don't slut shame on the Venom podcast. Like, no. You do you, girl. Get, Get it. it, Lucy. Lucy called Leard in her diary only a very attractive young animal, albeit with magnetic blue eyes. Okay. <laughs> So following objections from her family and friends that Leard was not good enough for her, Lucy broke off her relationship with him. So it's like the worst kept secret. She's like engaged to this other person, but she's simultaneously (laughs) having a relationship with someone else. Yeah, Edwin's like, please stop cheating on me. Like, it's not cool. (laughs) It's like, you could just come live with me. Yeah. No, I have to remain a virgin bride and also kiss this other guy a lot. Yeah. A lot. (laughs) So she breaks off the relationship with him, and then he died. What? He died of the flu. This is the second guy that she's second guy that dies of the flu intertwined with that. And I use air quotes here. Died of the flu. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think she's given him? 
arsenic in the letter <laughs> and then arsenic in his mouth. I just imagine that autopsy. We think he died of arsenic in the mouth. <laughs> it's pretty obvious. It's a pretty clear cut case of arsenic in the mouth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <sighs> Lucy's a murderer. You know, some things change, some things never change. <laughs> never. And murder in the Minute Women podcast. Us f- claiming people have been murdered with <laughs> yes. no substantial evidence. Yeah. Is a big part of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So he dies of this flu. And then in 1898, after much unhappiness and disillusionment, Lucy broke off her engagement with Simpson. So she doesn't even marry that guy in the end. They could have just gotten married. Oh, my God. Okay. All right. So at this point, she stops seeking out romantic love. Good. She's like, I'm done. Lucy was greatly upset when she learned that Lear died in June of 1899, writing in her diary, it is easier to think him as dead, mine, all mine in death, as he never could be in life. Mine when no other woman could ever lie on his heart or kiss his lips. Um, wow. I think I think Lucy's becoming a goth. <laughs> I think so. I think this is her goth phase. This is her goth phase. Yeah. Like, sh- that's a messed up thing to say, Lucy. I know you didn't intend anyone <laughs> to read that, but uh, uh, it's like, hey. I would rather you be dead than date another woman. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's cold. That's that's dark. That's really, have, really dark. have you watched uh, Yellow Jackets by any chance? No, but I've heard really good things. I only watched the first episode. It, To be honest, it didn't really grasp my attention. It's very okay. gory, too, which like isn't really oh. my vibe. But... Okay. There's a scene where someone is like having sex with somebody and it's like they're not in a relationship and she's like telling him to tell her that he's in love with her. She's like, I'm not going to hold you to it. Just just say you love me. Just say you love me. I imagine similar things were happening with Lucy and Leard. Okay. It's just like she's like they're in bed together and she's just like, so you'd rather be dead than be with anyone else, right? Yeah. And she's he's like, like what? And she's like, I want to hold you to it. Just, just, just say it. it. Just say just it. Say it. <laughs> oh, crazy lady. If you do go watch Yellow Jackets, though, let me know how it ends, because I don't think okay. I'm going to keep watching it. <laughs> okay, will do. <laughs> so in 1898, Lucy uh, moved back to Cavendish. So at this point, she's in another town in PEI, but she moves back to Cavendish uh, with her widowed grandmother at this point, so... Her grandfather has died. For a nine-month period between 1901 and 1902, she worked in Halifax as a substitute proofreader for the Daily Echo and the Morning Chronicle, two newspapers. Lucy was inspired to write her first book during this period of time. So until her grandmother's death in March 1911, Lucy stayed in Cavendish to take care of her. This coincided with a period of considerable income from her publications. So she's starting to make a decent amount of money from all of the short stories that she's writing. And Grandma lived a good life, though. That feels old for that Yeah, I mean, she's definitely... Probably in her 60s. Like, at least. Because yeah. Lucy's in her late 20s at this point. Yeah. Although she enjoyed this income, she was aware that marriage was necessary for most women in Canada. Mm-hmm. So... Even though she is making this income, she knows that, like, she has no pension. So she'll probably need to get married at some point. Yeah. So that's a constant stressor going on in the background. For sure. 
1908, Lucy published her first book, Anne of Green Gables. It was an immediate success. It established Lucy's career, and she wrote and published material, including numerous sequels to Anne, for the rest of her life. Anne of Green Gables was published in June of 1908, and by November of 1909, it had gone through six printings. The Canadian press made much of Lucy's roots in Prince Edward Island, which was portrayed as a charming part of Canada where the people retained old-fashioned values and everything moved at a much slower pace. The American press suggested that all of Canada was backward and slow, arguing that a book like Anne of Green Gables was only possible in a rustic country like Canada, where the people were nowhere near as advanced as in the United States. Oh my god. (laughs) So... A lot of the coverage that she gets portrays her as the ideal woman in the sense that she never wanted to be famous. She never wanted the money. She just had this like really cute idea to write a book. So that's like the way the media portrays her a lot of the time because they, they don't want any political implications of this is a woman, like women don't have the vote yet. So they don't want this to be like women's independence, women's ability to make money for themselves, which is very much Lucy's thought process. Like she's wanted to be famous since she was 13 years old, but they portray her as this really like humble girl from like small, mean, small country, small town. Mm -hmm. And she just like wanted to write a book because that would be cute and fun, which is not her and not Anne by any means. No. And it's like very headstrong and independent. So in contrast to this ideal image of her, Lucy wrote in a letter to a friend, I am frankly in literature to make a living out of it. So she's like, I'm writing books so I can make money. I'm here like, for the money. Like, I'm, I'm here for the money. Give me the bag. Yeah. <laughs> I write these cute little happy stories for you all so I can make bank. Pay up. Yeah. <laughs> so at the time when a lot of, her Anne books are being written like she's in her 30s her 40s and there will be newspaper articles that refer to her as a young school teacher that's not who she is yeah (laughs) so she's written as this idealized female author who was happiest in a domestic rural environment and disliked fame and celebrity which was seen as conflicting with the idealized version of femininity during this period of time. It really emphasizes Lucy's modesty and her desire to remain anonymous. Like she doesn't want to put her name on the book. And they often reflect those values in how they write about Prince Edward Island as well. So like a lot of these newspaper articles will, will write about how like life is unspoiled and it's like this unspoiled land. So it's almost like don't compare yourself. Don't think that just because this woman had a successful book, think that you can because like you live in the real world and she doesn't. Not gonna happen. So shortly after her grandmother's death in 1911, Lucy finally gets married. Otherwise, she'd be basically alone. She has no family left um, Mm. that she's close with anyways. Her father might still be alive, but she marries a man named Ewan MacDonald. He was a Presbyterian minister, and they promptly moved to Ontario, where he had taken up a position at St. Paul's Presbyterian Church in what is today Uxbridge Township, also affiliated with a congregation in the nearby Zephyr. They get married and they just like, he's like, all right, we're moving. Say goodbye to this place you love. We're going to Ontario. That's sad. Yeah. Lucy wrote her next 11 books here. And she often complained that the, they live in this house called the Leaksdale Manse, which is the, the building that comes with the church. Okay. 
It doesn't have a bathroom. Doesn't have a toilet. What? And she's for eleven years. She lived or for like seven years or something. They lived there, and she's like, I Gross. hate it here. Yeah. yeah. The congregation later sold the structure, and now it's a National Historic Site, so you can go visit the house that they lived in. Cool. Lucy writes that MacDonald was not especially intelligent, nor was he interested in literature. So she's married someone who is her total opposite. Why is she with him? Because I think she genuinely felt like she had no other choice. I guess. Like, I think she feels like she's pretty old at this point. She's born in 1874. It's 1911 when they get married. So that would make her 37? Yeah, almost 40. She is, she is a little older. So she wrote in her diary, I would not want him for a lover, but I, hope at, I hoped at first that we might at least be friends. Not the case. It, it doesn't work out great. Yeah. <laughs> so after they got married, uh, they did go on a honeymoon to England and Scotland. Oh, and. Nice. Scotland in particular was a huge point of interest for her. She always refers to it as the old country. Her family is from Scotland originally. And she always had these visions of like really romantic castles and rugged mountains and glens and lakes and waterfalls. Um, And she wants to visit her ancestral homeland. By contrast, McDonald's parents had come to Canada after being evicted during the Highland Clearances. And he had absolutely no desire to go to the old country. Um, so basically their whole money honeymoon is her dragging him around to see sites and places. And he's just like, no thanks. He's just like, mm, I don't want to. She even has to like drag him to go see his family's ancestral home on the Isle of Skye. Yeah. Which is like where all the McDonald's come from. <laughs> and she was just like, don't you want to see that? And he's like, not really, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not really. <laughs> Lucy also loved a lot of Scottish writers, so like Robbie Burns and Walter Scott. And so she's reading all these Scottish books while she's there, whereas her husband did not read books at all. He's like forcing her to explain to him like who these people are and why they're important. It just why sounds awful. Like it sounds like the worst yeah. like vacation ever. Yeah, he sounds like a boob. So she says it's like she really was like happy that they took the trip, but clearly Ewan is not the person to take on this trip. (laughs) He's not having a great time. Lucy and Ewan would go on to have three sons. The second was stillborn, however. So she has two sons, which I never knew. Like I never knew that Lucy Ma Montgomery had children. I I always thought that she was just like a a spinster for her whole life. And she never got married. I honestly would have said that she never got married. Yeah, that she just like... Especially because she she authors under her maiden name. Yeah. Like, I never yeah. knew that she becomes a McDonald, though I That's don't think she badass. ever actually refers to herself as such. That probably wasn't very common for the time. No, no. And I think it, it's because she was able to establish herself as an author that she was able to. Yeah. Like, she already had money coming in under a certain name. Anyways, Lucy believed it was her duty as a woman to make the marriage work. She did quip to a reporter at one point that those women whom God wanted to destroy, he would make them into the wives of ministers. Uh. This is my, <laughs> this is the Lord's test for me, is making me marry this minister. 
So she greatly increases her writing during this period of time, which is probably not surprising. Uh, She's trying to escape some things going on in her real life. Between 1909 and 1910, Lucy drew upon her Scottish-Canadian heritage and her memories of her teenage years to write her 1911 novel, The Story Girl. Her youth had been spent among Scottish Canadians um, and their Scottish tales, myths, and legends had often been recounted to her. And Lucy uses those as the background to create uh, Sarah Stanley, who's a skilled storyteller who has an idealized version of her adolescent self. Um, The character of Peter Craig in The Story Girl very much resembles Herman Lear, the great love of Lucy's life, and the man she wished she'd married but did not right down to having the blonde curly hair that Herman would have had. So sad. Sarah is basically Lucy in the story, and Peter is Herman. Because Herman's dead. As with her relationship with Leard, the other characters object to the lower class Peter as not being good enough, and there's a character that winds up choosing him anyways named Felicity King. So in real life, Herman was engaged to another woman, and I do believe they get married before he passes away. What? Um, this crazy. Like, Herman was always engaged to somebody else while him and Lucy were together. And I'm pretty sure they get married because Lucy tells him, like, I can't be with you. Yeah. So what else is he going to do? What else are you going to do? Then the First World War breaks out. Oh, yeah. This is, pre, this is pre-war time. Oof. Yes. The wars very much affect Lucy in a very personal way. It's a little dramatic, in my opinion, <laughs> but she okay. really she really internalizes the suffering of the world, okay. which is not great for your mental health. Not great. Uh, she's really horrified by the reports of the rape of Belgium in 1914, um, and she was an intense supporter for the war effort, seeing the war as a crusade to save civilization, regularly writing articles urging men to volunteer for the Canadian Expeditionary Force and for people on the home front to buy victory bonds. Lucy wrote in her diary on- Don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) Don't buy victory bonds? Yeah, don't go to war. Well, yeah, maybe don't go to war. (laughs) Lucy wrote in her diary on September 12th, 1914, but oh, there have been such hideous stories in the papers lately about their cutting off of the hands of little children in Belgium. Can they be true? They have committed terrible outrages and crimes. That is too, too surely true. But I hope desperately that these stories of mutilation of children are false. They harrow my soul. I walk the floor in my agony over them. I cry myself to sleep about them and wake again in the darkness to cringe with the horror of it. If it were Chester, Chester being one of her sons. So yeah, she's very much like, yeah. I'm sure it's a very genuine shock and she's horror. She's a little self-absorbed. It's I a mean, little self-centered in my she's opinion. She's a little like self-obsessed. Like it's all about her. Like wah, wah, wah. Just a little bit. I little can't bit. sleep because there's a war going on. <laughs> <laughs> so in Leaksdale, like everywhere else in Canada, recruiting meetings were held by ministers such as Lucy's husband. Mm-hmm. And so he would often speak about Kaiser Wilhelm II as the personification of evil, describe the rape of Belgium in really graphic detail, and asked for young men to step up to volunteer and fight for Canada, the British Empire, and for justice in what was described at the time as a crusade against evil. 
In an essay that she wrote appealing for volunteers, Lucy wrote, I am not one of those who believe that this war will put an end to all wars. War is terrible, but there are things that are more horrible still, just as there are fates worse than death. Mm-hmm. It's almost part of her community duty to do these essays and stuff. Um, not that I don't think she doesn't genuinely believe it, but she is like the minister's wife. So she's a pretty public figure and she's expected to make these statements in some ways. Yeah, and she's a writer. So And she's a writer. Make them yeah. good. Yeah. Exactly. She argued prior to the war that Canada had been slipping into atheism, materialism, and moral decay. And the war had brought back a welcomed revival of Christianity, patriotism, and moral strength as the Canadian people faced the challenge of the greatest war yet fought in history. Lucy ended her essay by stating that women on the home front were playing a crucial war effort role, which led to her asking for women's suffrage. On October 7th, 1915, Lucy gave birth to their third child uh, and then was thrown into depression when she discovered she could not produce breast milk to feed her son, who was then given cow's milk instead. And this was a really risky thing to do during this period of time because cow's milk is not pasteurized yet. Um, So she feels a lot of like maternal guilt and Mm. postpartum depression during this period of time as well. Poor Lucy. Lucy identified very strongly with the Allied cause, and it led her to write in her diary, All my misery seemed centered around Verdun, where the snow was no longer white. I seemed in my own soul to embrace all the anguish and strain of France. In the same diary entry, Lucy wrote of a strange experience. A great calm seemed to descend upon me and envelop me. I was at peace. The conviction seized upon me that Verdun was safe, that the Germans would not pass the grim barrier of desperate France. I was as a woman from whom all evil spirit had been driven, or can it be a priestess of old who out of the depths of agony wins some strange foresight of the future? So now she's having... Okay. <laughs> she's, she's seeing visions of the future where Germans will not defeat France in the war. Which only works when it comes true. You know, if yeah, it goes I was the other say, way. I wouldn't like let her read my tarot cards or anything because <laughs> I would love yeah. if like tarot cards were like it's like what what do, what do my cards say? What do they say about my future? It says that Germany is not going to win the war. It's like, that's not what I asked, Lucy. I asked about my future. I wanna know my future. Am I gonna Lady. marry this guy? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe ask me a question about the First World War. Or instead. myself. Like, or, let's talk about me. Let's talk about me. Do you want to yeah. know about, you know, the agony I've poured on the floor for the children of Belgium again for the fourth time? <laughs> oh, Lucy. So Lucy would celebrate every Allied victory at her house. So every time there's like a big battle, she would like do something for it. Um, She flew the Russian flag when she heard that the Russians had captured the supposedly impregnable uh, Ottoman city fortress of Trebizond in April of 1916. Oh, yeah. Remember the Ottoman Empire? (laughs) (laughs) It's like flashbacks to Ivy history. (laughs) Yeah. Over time through the war, uh, Lucy grows increasingly disgusted with her husband because Ewan started to refuse to preach about the war anymore. Why? 
Lucy wrote in her diary, it unsettles him and he cannot do his work properly. He just sounds kind of whiny. A little, but also he's he's developed he's developed doubts that like this war is going to solve anything. So he doesn't okay. want to be the one who's encouraging young men to enlist just so they go and die. Which like also I think fair is fair and he's also like I've already done that. Like I've already encouraged yeah. a bunch of people in this town and some of them have died. And then he internalizes that and he's like I've sinned so grievously. Maybe I'm a bad person. Yeah, that's uh, that's dark. They're super depressing to be around. Yeah, they're not invited to parties. <laughs> not invited. <laughs> Just funerals. Lucy, obviously, very deeply religious person. And so she's constantly reflecting about the war and how this is influencing her belief in God. And she basically comes to the conclusion. She's like, God is good, but not omnipotent. And therefore, you know, there could be principles of evil in this world. And, you know, it's, it's, he's not just going to like win this war for us. We can't just pray, basically. Yeah. In total, Oxbridge County, which is where they're from, um, lost 21 men in the First World War. And it's not a very big place, it's not a big town. So that's pretty hard on the community. And um, World War One, like guaranteed, you could pick like who you kind of went in like kind of a battalion with and so that's like 21 people who were probably brothers and fathers and sons and families and so you're not only wiping out communities you're wiping out like family units like which is why you're not allowed to do that anymore well in world war ii you weren't allowed to like you and your brother couldn't be on the same in the same battalion because like one of you has got to come home and take care of mom because of this and like because of the personal connection lucy is like obsessed with the war she wants to like read the paper every day she wants to know everything while simultaneously her husband is the complete opposite he doesn't want to know anything he won't buy the daily paper because it just troubles him too much to learn about the war day in day out um so they have very different reactions to it which once again shows they are very different people (laughs) at their core Lucy underwent several periods of depression while trying to cope with the duties of motherhood and church life and with her husband's attacks of religious melancholia. So that's what they would diagnose it at the time. Today, we would call it major depressive disorder. But, you know, he also has some deteriorating health issues. So one author, like a biographer of Lucy, states that for a woman who had given so much joy to the world, life was mostly an unhappy one. That's so sad. In 1918, Lucy was stricken with and was almost killed by the Spanish flu pandemic, which killed 50 to 100 million people worldwide. And she spent 10 days bedridden with Spanish flu. That's what killed Edward Cullen, too. Like from Twilight. Yeah. (laughs) That's Herman. Oh my gosh. Oh my Lucy Lucy wrote Twilight. <laughs> Lucy is Stephanie Myers. <laughs> Reincarnate. Yeah. <laughs> so she had visited Toronto. There was a really terrible outbreak there, and that's probably where she caught it. And then she went back to Leeksdale. Um, she said that she was in bed for 10 days. I never felt so sick or weak in my entire life. Uh, and then she went on to express thanks to God and her friends for helping her survive the or- ordeal. Lucy's best friend, Frederica Campbell McFarlane, was not so lucky, however, and died after contracting Spanish flu on the 20th of January, 1919. 
Lucy was upset that her husband had been indifferent to her while she was dying of the Spanish flu, which drove her to think about divorce, something which was very difficult to obtain in Canada until 1967. Between 1873 and 1901, there were only 263 divorces out of a population of 6 million people. Her experience with Spanish flu and being bedridden and then her friend dying and she's like, I want a divorce. From the minister. From the minister. The scandal. (laughs) The scandal of it all. Ultimately, Montgomery decided, however, it was her Christian duty to make the marriage work. Of course she did. And that is where we are going to leave it for part one. It's a two-parter. Of the Lucy Montgomery story. The agony. Lucy Maud Montgomery, excuse me. The agony. It it doesn't really get much uh, more happy from here on but there are some twists and turns in lucy's later life that we're gonna get into a lot of which have to do with legal troubles and court cases oh my gosh the exciting drama of lucy's life (laughs) i am i am ready Where can people find us in the meantime? In the meantime, well, a great place to start is to check out our website, which is www.minutewomenpodcast.ca. There you can find our merch and links to all of our episodes. And you can also find us on Instagram at Minute Women Podcast. And you can find us on Twitter at The Minute Women. And yeah, you can find us there. And then you can follow along with our Minute Women journey. And you can also rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcast. You can now officially rate and review the podcast on Spotify yes. as well. So for all of our Android users who have just been clamoring to review the podcast, <laughs> you finally waiting. can. Please do it. Please. <laughs> Please go do it. It's a really big help to the show. Yeah. It makes us more visible yeah. for people who have never seen the show before. Exactly. We put out new episodes every Wednesday, so you can tune in next week to hear the exciting conclusion of the life of Lucy Maud Montgomery. Dun, dun, dun. Bye. Bye. <laughs> it states... Recently, a new and exceedingly brilliant... St- I don't want to read this. Okay, don't. I changed my mind. I'm not going to include that part. Yeah, don't. We're but you should on. include that because it's funny. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>